You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. It began as a normal work day for Janelle. Janelle was originally from Trinidad, but she moved to New York City in hopes of a better life. Janelle worked for the Port Authority of New York City. Her office was on the 64th floor of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. It was Tuesday, September 11, 2001. The day began just as normal as any other work day. When all of a sudden at 8.46 a.m., she heard a loud noise and then the building shook. Now, at first, she didn't know what happened and she thought possibly it was an earthquake. But Janelle soon realized that 30 floors above her, an airplane had hit the building. And then 17 minutes later, another airplane hit the South Tower. So shortly after all of that, Janelle and her co-workers began making their way, trying to make their way out of the building. They, uh, Janelle took the hand of Rosa, and they quickly began going down the darkened stairwells of the North Tower. They went down floor by floor as quick as they could. They made it to the 13th floor, and Ro- Janelle stopped to, to pull off her shoe. And at, at that moment, the walls crumbled in. They opened up, and the whole building crumbled. There was silence. Janelle didn't know what to think. She was still alive, but there was silence. There was a steel beam on top of her. There was concrete all around her. She was alone, and she was pinned underneath all of the rubble. And Janelle wrote, I was sealed in a coffin of concrete and steel. I screamed for help, but my voice went nowhere. I was alone, all alone. Have you ever felt pinned underneath the weight of something? Have you ever felt trapped underneath the weight of something? Maybe it wasn't a steel beam or or concrete, but maybe it was uh, job pressures, financial struggles, marital struggles, parenting struggles. Maybe, Maybe that's where some of you are right now. Or maybe you feel like Janelle felt you feel all alone, completely alone. You, you scream for help, but you don't feel like your screams go anywhere. And you just feel alone. I'm sure all of us have felt that way at some point. Maybe some of you, that's where you are now because of the uncertainty that we're experiencing in our world. Maybe whether it's a furlough or a loss of a job or something, that because of that, you face this incredible uncertainty and you feel under the weight of it. And you're not really sure what to do. Well, I hope you'll pay attention tonight because we're going to continue our study on the life of of Elijah. And Elijah faced an extreme trial tonight, just like Janelle did that Tuesday morning in New York City. But, you know, the widow also experienced an extreme trial as well. You remember her last time we were together, we met the widow of Zarephath. And her extreme trial was, at that point, she didn't have much food left. She and her son were about to starve to death. But God intervened and God provided for her. And you would think, man, life would, would be smooth sailing after that experience for her. But as we're going to see tonight, there was an even more extreme trial on tap for her. And, and what about Elijah? I mean, God already had him at, at the brook Cherith, and then he traveled about 100 miles to Zarephath. You would think, man, it can only get easier for Elijah at this point. But that would not be the case. We're going to see even in Elijah, it faced an extreme trial tonight. And so as we look at the life of Elijah, we've been trying to figure out how can we shine for God in the midst of a dark world? That's what Elijah did. 
What did he do? And what can we learn from his life? So tonight, I want to look at four ways that we can respond to extreme trials in our life. And I hope you'll be greatly encouraged from the Word of God. We're going to look at phase three in Elijah's training. Phase one was by the brook Cherith. Phase two was at Zarephath. Phase three is still at Zarephath, but it's a different trial, a different experience. And Elijah saw something incredibly new about God. So let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 17 together. Now you remember that 1 and 2 Kings is about the spiritual decline of God's people. When the book started, man, things were great. David was still alive. He anointed his son Solomon to be king. The, 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 the kingdom flourished for a number of years under Solomon. There was great wealth. The, there was peace. It was a great time to be an Israelite. But Solomon's heart was led away from God. And because of that, the nation ended up dividing. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. There was war. There was, there was wicked spiritual uh, leadership. And the people were led away from God. And so you see wicked king after wicked king in the north. And finally it comes to King Omri. And, um, and he did more evil than all who were before him. And then you, then you have King Ahab. And then Ahab did all, more evil than all who were before him. So you see this incredible spiritual decline. And even it says in, in, um, in 1 Kings 16, verse 33, that the Lord, the God of Israel, was angry at, at, at what was happening. And so Ahab replaced the worship of Yahweh with the worship of a false god named Baal. And that's where there was idolatry. That's where the people of Israel were at that moment. It was in the midst of that dark time spiritually that God raised up a man named Elijah. If you're reading through 1 Kings, it's just, it seems to just go year by year by year. It goes incredibly fast until you get to the life of Elijah and it slows down. The pace slows down and you see how God raised up Elijah and then Elisha to be a, an incredible light for him in the midst of a dark time. So that's, that's the setting of 1 Kings. And so you look here in, verse, in chapter 17, and you, you look, it says, after this, 1 Kings 17, 17, after this, after, after God had miraculously provided for this widow and her son, after God had provided the oil and the flour, and every morning that the, that the widow would go to the kitchen, man, there was fresh provision from God. It was, it was a miraculous provision. And I'm sure this day was no different. Perhaps she went into the kitchen and there on the shelf, there's more provision. Thank you, God. Thank you for your provision for the day. And perhaps she began cooking and preparing a meal for she and her son and Elijah. And, and, and we don't know what time of day this would have happened. But perhaps at that moment, she began wondering, hey, I haven't seen my son yet. Usually he's, he's, he's in here and he's hungry and he's excited and he's talking about what he wants to do for the day and He's ready to eat, but I haven't seen him yet. So maybe at that moment she went to go check on him, and, and then she noticed, as, as verse 17 says, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. She noticed, oh, oh my, he's, he, he's grown sick. So, something's happening here. And then it says, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. Now we're not told how long he was sick, Maybe it, it just appears like this just came on him suddenly. Then all of a sudden he died. There's, there's no more life. There's no more breath left in him. The term for illness can refer to a disease or to wounds received in battle. We, we don't know exactly what it was, but we know that she had lost her husband. 
She was a widow, and now she lost her only child. And you can imagine the grief and raw emotion that she would have been experiencing in that moment. I would imagine she had hopes for her son and, and, and a certain profession or a trade that he was going to be in, and certainly probably would have thought he's going to care for me in my old age. I've got someone to help me out. And, and, and all of that came crashing down on that day when she went in there and sees her son sick, and then all of a sudden his life is gone. And look at how she responds in verse 18. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Naturally, she was grieving, and you can sense the emotion in her voice here. And you would expect that after someone just lost a child. Uh, But she thought something else was happening here. She thought the presence of the prophet Elijah, somehow God must be judging me. Somehow, because he is here, now my sins have come up to remembrance, and God is punishing me because of my sin. That's what she presumed. And so until this point, she has benefited from Elijah's presence. I mean, there's, there's been provision of food because she believed the word of God that came through Elijah. But, but now, now things have changed. And maybe she thought, hey, the risk has outweighed the benefit. I, 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 don't, I don't know what to do. So she does what we often do sometimes when we experience grief. She casts blame on, on Elijah. Elijah, this is your fault. Because you're here now God sees my sin, and he's judging me, and it's, it's your fault. And so she's, remember we said last time, I, I believe the widow was saved in, in the last uh, story there, just above this one. But she's young in her faith. Maybe she's not been a Christian very long, and so she, she, she doesn't know, and so she's still struggling. And so uh, Elijah, uh, I love his response that we'll look at in a minute. Elijah sees the raw emotion of the moment. He doesn't try to chase down her emotions. He doesn't try to escalate and defend himself. He just steps in and and tries to help. And I want to give you four things tonight, four ways that you and I can respond in extreme trials. The first is this. Extreme trials reveal our worldview. Extreme trials reveal our worldview. Our worldview is simply how we see the world. And it's the lens through which we see the world. And if you, if you are a Christian, we should see the world through the lens of Jesus. That is, we see Jesus is in control. At the end of Matthew, you see Jesus said, I have all authority has been given to me. So as a Christian, we should see the world. Hey, Jesus has all authority. He is on his throne. He is in control. But yes, there is an evil one who's the prince of this world, and he has a limited amount of power. But Jesus has all power, and he is in control. That's the Christian worldview. But there's also another worldview, and if you're not a Christian, you probably have the worldview of humanism. That is, that you believe you see things just in pure human terms. That is, everything just happens by chance. It, 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 it happens by fate. And, and man causes things. Man is the instigator. And man is the center of everything. It's a humanistic Worldview. So many people have that worldview. But there's also a third category, and that's where this woman from Zarephath, I believe that's where she was. I, I, I believe that she was a believer in God. She was a child of God, but she was immature in her faith. 
So even though she, was a, 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 she belonged to God, she didn't have a Christian worldview yet. And so she believed she had a humanistic worldview that just as humans retaliate and humans will punish people who have done bad things to them, she, she believes, well, that's what God's doing to me. She didn't, she didn't understand that God, maybe she didn't understand that God loved her. And, and that God's not, sure, God disciplines his children, as we're told later in Scripture, but we're not told she's done anything wrong here. We're not told that God's disciplining her. We're just, we just know from the larger context of Scripture, God, for some reason, is allowing this to happen. He's allowing this tragedy to happen. And we believe he's, he would use that to draw her into a deeper walk with him. But she doesn't know that yet. She doesn't have that perspective. And so this trial reveals her worldview. Extreme trials do that. And so even though some of you, uh, you know, you're experiencing that right now by everything that's happening in the world. This, this trial of a virus is revealing your worldview. Do you really believe that Jesus is on his throne, that he's in complete control? Or do you have a humanistic worldview? Maybe that's why some of you are struggling and you feel overwhelmed with fear and anxiety because you're not seeing this from a Christian perspective and believing that, no, no, Jesus is in control. It doesn't mean we don't struggle with fear. It just, it just means when we do, we cast it upon the Lord Jesus. We say, Father, this is, this is not right. I'm not given a spirit of fear. I'm going to trust you in the midst of this. I love the verse in Isaiah 26.3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And that's where we should be as followers of Jesus. We should keep our trust in God. Even though we do experience fear, we do experience anxiety. When we do, we cast it upon him and we keep our eyes fixed on him, knowing that he's in control. That's the Christian worldview. In 2019, Aaron Latin and his girlfriend were walking on Folly Beach in South Carolina. Folly Beach is very near Charleston, South Carolina. And as they were walking there, uh, right before that, Hurricane Dorian had come through that area and caused uh, it, it caused a lot of damage in a number of places, but it had just come through there. And as they were walking, they, they, they saw something on the beach, and they thought it was some type of a rock, but it was a pretty large item. They thought it must be a rock, but as they got closer, they realized it was something else. They discovered it was an 8-inch cannonball, and they called the local authorities. And, and um, what's interesting is that in 1863, the Union Army uh, occupied... That, that very beach. And not far from there, the first shot in the Civil War was fired in 1861. So that cannonball had been there for over 150 years. And it was only recently when Hurricane Dorian came through, that storm revealed what had been there for over well over 100 years. You see, that's what extreme trials in life do. They reveal what's already there. And so that's what this extreme trial can do in our life. It's just revealing the worldview that's already been in our hearts. And so it's an opportunity for us to grow. It's an opportunity for us to say, Lord, teach me. Teach me through this. Help me to have the right perspective in the midst of this. Well, what about Elijah's worldview? What type of worldview did he have? Well, let's, let's look. It says in um, verse 19, And he said to her, Give me your son. Elijah didn't try to defend himself. He didn't try to uh, escalate emotionally. 
he just spoke gently as best I can tell and just said, give me your son. He understood the, the emotion of the moment and he just wanted to help. He just wanted to try to, to, to minister to, to her. And so he takes the boy and he says he took him from her arms. And I just, and I just wonder as I studied this, I read this, I wonder if it was, if it was his gentle response one source said, perhaps because he responded so gently, she was willing to give him her son. Now, if he would have escalated on her and maybe she would have held on and said, no, I'm not giving you my son. You're angry at me. But because he just said, give me your son, I'm, I'm here to help. I'm not here to harm. I'm not here to fuss at you. I'm not here to criticize you. I, I'm here to help, I'm here to minister to you. She willingly gave her, her dead son over to him. And it says that he took the son up to the, his upper chamber. Elijah was staying in an, an upper room there. And the upper room would have had an external entry point so that uh, the, the widow and her son would have had privacy and it would have protected her reputation. But he goes up to the upper room and it says he laid the child on his, on his bed, his own bed. He takes a dead child and, and lays the child on, on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord. He said he cried out to the Lord. This, this word for cried out is very common in the Old Testament. It's used over 700 times. It means to cry, to call out, to shout. The basic meaning of this term is to draw someone's attention with the sound of the voice in order to establish contact. See, Elijah is trying to get God's attention. He's contacting and connecting with God. So he's crying out to God. Oh God, would you help me? Oh Lord, my God, he says. And so he's desperate. You see, desperate Christians become praying Christians. When we're desperate, we should, go to, we should always go to the Lord in prayer, but especially when we're desperate, we take our needs to Him. We take our problems to Him, and, and, we, and we trust Him. You see, we don't, we're not told that Elijah had any medical training. We're, we're not told that Elijah had ever been prepared for this. You see, when we look at the Word of God, there's no manual to tell us how to handle every single situation in life. Yes, God's Word gives us principles, General principles, I believe, that can help us and teach us how to handle situations. God gives us wisdom. But there, not every single situation is lined out in Scripture. And I, it's that way with any professional school you would go to. You, you know, law school is not gonna, probably not going to prepare you for every single case you're ever going to encounter. Same with medical school. It, it, how can they prepare you for some, some new virus that may appear 40 years from now? But you learn general principles. And you learn how to research, you learn how to study, and you learn how to prepare in general for things. And so Elijah certainly would not have been prepared for this, but he knew God, and he knew how to pray. And so he goes and he lays him out on on his bed, and he calls out to God. It's interesting, this same word for call or crowd is, is used in Isaiah 65, verse 12, where God called for Israel, and Israel did not answer. Isn't that interesting? God called for Israel, and Israel didn't answer. But now Elijah's calling for God, and God responds, as we'll see here. I want you to see two things about Elijah's prayer. First, observe who Elijah prayed to. He said, O Lord, my God. He's calling on Yahweh, Jehovah. Yahweh, my God. 
See, he had a personal relationship with God. He, he knew him. This is not some higher power he's calling on. This is not someone else's God. It was his God. It, it was, this was personal. You see, Elijah had learned to walk with God at this point. Elijah had spent some quiet time by the brook Cherith, and he had learned to be alone with God. He had learned the discipline of solitude. He had learned to cry out to God. He had learned to depend on God for his needs. He had learned to depend on God at Zarephath before. So Elijah had learned how to pray. And so he's just doing, at this point, what has become natural, what has become a discipline in his life. So all he knows to do, I'm just going to pray. I'm just going to talk to God because God has provided before. Why wouldn't he provide here? So that's what he does. Then notice, notice how Elijah prayed. Not just who he prayed to. Notice how he prayed. It says he, he identified with the widow's desperate situation. Have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I, I sojourn by killing her son? See, Elijah's confused. He's like, God, what is going on here? I, I don't understand. You see, he didn't, he didn't take his questions to the, the widow. He took his concerns and his questions to God. You read through the Psalms, you see David just pouring out his heart to God, just at times. And, and that, that's what Elijah's doing. He's pouring out his heart to God. God, I don't understand. What, it, have you killed this lady's son? What, what, what is happening here? And instead of trying to offer the widow these pious responses and platitudes that, that don't help anybody, he just says, give me your son. And he goes and he takes his questions to God. And he, God has an answer. And so after Elijah prayed, we see a step of faith in action. Look, look here in verse 21. It says, Then he stretched himself upon the child three times. He stretched himself out on, on top of the child. Now, Elijah's not doing CPR here. He's not doing mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Now, the weight of a grown man's body on top of a child is not conducive to helping the child breathe. Okay, that, that's, not, that's not what's happening here. I believe Elijah's posture represented the transfer of power from God through Elijah to the child. So as he's stretching out, the power of God is coming through him and now is going into this child. I believe that's what's happening here. In ancient Mesopotamian uh, literature, demons would come in contact with every part of the body in order to take possession of that part of the body. And I believe as Elijah is stretching himself out, He's claiming this child for God. He's saying, God, this is your child. And and the power of God is flowing through him. And so he does it three times. And and I believe he's doing that because God is one in essence, but he's three in persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he's stretching himself. He does that three times. And then it says, um, or, or one source said, Elijah's actions were an acted out way of saying, Let his lifeless body be as my lively body. And the prayer that accompanies it fortifies this symbol. So after Elijah does this three times, then he prays again. This is is in verse 21. O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. uh, Again, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. Now, we read this. And we can immediately think, we're, we're not that surprised by that type of a prayer. Because we have the New Testament, which Elijah did not have, obviously, at that point. But we can think to John 11, 
And we think, oh yeah, well Jesus called out Lazarus after been dead four days. And here comes Lazarus walking out in grave clothes. We, we know Acts 20 when uh, Paul raised Eutychus from the dead. Obviously, Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. See, we have the, old, the, the New Testament, and we, and we know those things. But Elijah didn't have that. In fact, I want you to think before Elijah, before 1 Kings, who was, who was someone that, that had risen, had come back to life after they had been dead? Can you think of anyone? Well, if you're having trouble thinking of someone, that's good because there wasn't anyone. No one until this point, as far as nothing at least recorded in Scripture, we do not have any record of anyone who had come back to life who had been dead. I mean, yes, there was Enoch who went into heaven who never died. God took him up. He, he, he was a righteous man, then he was no more. But no one, as far as we know, had died and come back to life. So Elijah's praying something radical here. He's praying something completely new. He's asking God to do the impossible. I mean, he, he had never seen that. He had never read that. And now he's saying, oh God, would you bring this child's life back to him? He's praying what no one else had ever prayed. I, I find that so interesting. And that brings us to our second point tonight. How you and I can respond to extreme trials in our life. Extreme trials allow us to ask for something totally new. Extreme trials allow us to ask for something totally new. What are you asking for God for these days? You see, sometimes we get in a rut in our prayer life. I, I know I do. At times, I just sometimes we pray for the same things day after day. And sometimes we just get into a, such a, a rhythm and a rut that, that we need to be shaken out of that. And ex- extreme trials can do that. It gives us the opportunity to pray for something totally new because we're going through something new and we need God to intervene. And so, uh, you know, maybe you've never prayed for that coworker that just irritates you at times. You think, have I ever stopped to pray for that person? Man, now would be a great time to do that. It's pray for it's, it's something new. Maybe there's that neighbor. You, you, you know, you've never prayed for him. You've waved to him, but you've never prayed for him. And that, man, you could pray for something totally new right now. Have you ever prayed just for a deeper walk with Jesus? Man, you could pray for that now. Yeah, now's the opportunity to do that. In 2005, Courtney and I were in another country, and I, I was reading, uh, I ran across a verse while we were there in Habakkuk 2.14. This is just part of it. It says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Wow, I love that verse. And I remember praying that verse over that particular country at the time. And, you know, I've prayed that maybe a handful of times since then, but that's not something I've prayed regularly. But yesterday in a devotion, a little devotion book I was reading, uh, it mentioned that, that verse. And it says the, the word to know in there refers to a genuine relationship with God. Man, what a great prayer to be praying for people right now. They're praying that people would have a genuine relationship with God. People around you, people in your family, you can pray for something totally new right now. That's what extreme trials allow us to do. And so uh, notice what happened in, in Elijah's life here. Uh, after he prays, and the, light, and the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. Now, Elijah was not a, a superman. Elijah, as, as James 5 says, was a man with a nature just like ours. Yeah, he has a, a fallen, sinful nature, just like we do. 
Yet God listened to him. He was a righteous man. He depended on God. He cried out to God and God listened to him. He'll listen to you too. He'll, he'll respond to you too if you'll call out to him. And, and then that, that's, what, that's what happened here. And Elijah witnessed a miracle. So the child's life comes back into him and Elijah all of a sudden sees the boy breathing again and maybe the boy just said, wow, what, what happened? How long, have, you know, how long was I gone? I, I, we're not told what he said. But then it says, and the life of the child came into him and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. Now, the boy in this story represents Israel. Remember, at this point, Elijah is outside of Israel. He's in Phoenicia. He's in the territory of Baal. He's, he's in the area where Baal was worshipped. And, and the boy represents Israel spiritually. They are dead spiritually. They have disobeyed God. God is judging them with a famine, or, or with a drought, rather. And, and that's what's happening. And God was, was, was teaching them that Israel is not without hope. Just as this lifeless boy was brought back to life, Israel too can be brought back to life spiritually. If they will turn to God, God can breathe into them the freshness of life spiritually, and they too could have a relationship with him. And maybe some of you feel that way. You feel like the boy. You just feel like, man, I'm too far gone. I've done too much. If, if you only knew what I've done or where I've been, you would, you would just say, yeah, there's, there's no hope. And my friend, I'm telling you, there is hope. There is hope. We, we're all born into sin. We're all born spiritually dead. That's what Ephesians 2 said. We're, we're dead in our trespasses and sin. But God, verse 4 says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So that could be you. You may feel just like that boy, just you're dead spiritually. You can turn to Christ now, receive him as your Lord and Savior. And my friend, you will be alive. You will be a new creation in Christ and your life will never be the same. That's what the boy, that's, that's what he represented. And there's something theologically happening here too that, that we need to see. Elijah, as we said, was in Baal territory. Zarephath was outside of Israel. And Baal was the god of fertility, the god of rain. And because of this drought, it was thought that, well, Baal has died, and he has, he's now in the underworld. And the god of death, which was Mot, now Mot has taken Baal captive. And so Mot is now in control. And what's happening theologically is Elijah now is in enemy territory, and he, what he's showing through this miracle, God is showing, not only is he God the victor over Baal, because God can provide food, as we saw last time, for a widow and her son, but God can also bring back to life. So God is the victor over Mott as well. God is the victor over these false gods. He is the true and living God. That's what's happening here theologically. And through Elijah's presence and ministry there, God is teaching Israel eventually, he's teaching this widow that he is the one true and living God. He is not some God that, that only controls part of the, of, of the universe. He is the living God who is the source of everything. He is the one in control. 
And so this brings us to our third point tonight. Extreme trials can reveal God's power. Extreme trials can reveal God's power. The extreme trial of death allowed the widow and Elijah to experience the, the miracle of God's power. You, can, you too can see the, the miracle of God's power right in the midst of what you're going through. You can experience the supernatural provision of God in the midst of this trial. It was the day after Christmas in 2011. There's a couple that lives on Staten Island in New York. The day after Christmas, someone broke into their house and, and stole this safe that had about $52,000 worth of items in it. There was jewelry, number of $100 bills, and some other items in this safe. It was gone. The police said, you'll never see it again. Meanwhile, Matthew and Maria noticed a box in their backyard. It was out next to the fence in their backyard. And, 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 and Matthew just thought, you know, it's an electrical box. Uh, but eventually the deer ate the foliage uh, off of the plants that was in front of the, this little box. And so it became more clear. And finally, uh, they, they took it. It was taken out of there. And they opened the box and noticed there's all these $100 bills in there. They were wet, but they were, they were still in there. There's all this jewelry. There's other items. And then there was a piece of paper with an address on it. They looked at the piece of paper and realized it was the address of one of their neighbors. And so the, Matthew took the, the box to, or went to the, uh, his neighbor's house and said, Hey, did, did someone, you know, were you robbed at some point? And the guy said, Yes. And uh, he said, Well, you know, we, I've got this box. And sure enough, that was his safe in one of his neighbor's yard. Now, the whole time, this man who was robbed of $52,000 experiencing this incredible extreme trial of robbery had no idea that his treasure was that close to him. And my friend, in the midst of this trial, you may feel like God is so far away. He is right there. He is so close to you. And you too can experience his power, his provision, his mercy in the midst of this if you will cry out to him. And now that's what Elijah did. He cries out to God and God intervened. Well, there's one more thing that I want you to see tonight. Verse 22 says, Elijah took the child and brought him down from the chamber, delivered him back to his, his mother. Just as Elijah abruptly said, give me your son, he left and he comes back and he says, see, your son lives. Elijah didn't, didn't try to draw attention to himself. He didn't say, here, look what I've done. He didn't say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm a prophet of God. Look, look, what, look what I've done. He didn't, he didn't say that. He just said, see, your son lives. You see, at this point in, in, in her faith, what was important was for her to see God, not to see Elijah. She, she needed to learn to trust God, not, not Elijah. Maybe that's why she was so frustrated at the very beginning and why she's accusing and blaming him because maybe she had trusted in Elijah instead of trusting in God. And maybe sometimes that's why you and I get frustrated. We get worried. We get fearful. Because all the things that we, are, we, we trust in, they can be taken away just like that. And we get frustrated and we think, oh, no, I've, I thought uh, I had put so much hope into that. And so Elijah wants her to know, hey, you need to trust God. God's going to take care of this. God's the one that raised him. I didn't raise him. This was the power of God. And so that, that's what he's teaching her him. And so the widow responded to Elijah in verse 24. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God. I know you're a man of God now. And that word, that, that, that phrase, man of God, is used of Moses and 
Deuteronomy 33.1. It's used of once of David, 2 Chronicles 8.14. It refers to a divine messenger who, speak, who spoke authoritatively and whose words came true. And so she, she sees now, oh, he's a man of God because what he has spoken has come true and, and God is using him. He's a true man of God. And so the widow learned that as life's challenges intensify and trials intensify, God's power and provision also intensify. That's, such, that's a great word for you and I. As the extreme trials intensify, just as hers did, man, God's provision, God's power, they intensify as well. They get even greater. We experience more of his power, more of his mercy. Now, the whole theme of this chapter is the word of God. You go all the way back to the beginning. Elijah obeyed the word of the Lord that came to him, and he went to Cherith. He obeyed the word of the Lord that came to him, and he went to Zarephath. It's just all about the word of God, word of God, word of God. And then now the word of God comes through. Uh, you know, Elijah's praying the word of God. Oh, Lord, my God. And now she says, I, I see that the word of the Lord is in your mouth. He was a man of God. And this whole chapter is about the authority of the word of God. Does the word of God have authority over your life? Are you in submission to what the word of God says? Are you living by the principles of the word of God every day? You see, Elijah was a man just like you and I, but he obeyed the word of God. And if you and I will obey the word of God, we will see God do things that only he could explain. There will be no human explanation for what God can do in and through our lives if we will obey his word and submit to his authority. God was teaching Elijah that if he could raise a Gentile boy back to life, he could raise the wayward nation of Israel back to life spiritually. See, God was teaching Elijah through this. God was preparing Elijah for the next journey. The next journey, as Lord willing, we'll look at soon, would be Mount Carmel. Man, 450 prophets of Baal, a confrontation with King Ahab. All this was awaiting for him. But you know what? Elijah was prepared now. Elijah, by the grace of God, had graduated from Cherith and Zarephath. This was, as we've said before, about a two or three year period where Elijah had had learned to trust God. He had learned to obey God. He had seen the power of God. He learned the power of prayer. He, he, he had learned that now, and he was ready. He had learned to walk by faith. And so he had seen God defeat the power of Baal, the power of Mott, in this enemy territory. And he knew now, hey, if God can do that here in Phoenicia, he could surely do that in Israel. And so he was ready. Uh, J. Vernon McGee wrote this, Elijah had to learn that he was a dried up brook, an empty flower barrel, a dead body. When Elijah learned this, then God could use him. You see, God was preparing Elijah. Warren Wiersbe wrote this, that God is more concerned about the worker than the work. And he had been preparing Elijah for the greatest challenge of faith in his entire ministry. This brings us to our last point tonight. Extreme trials prepare us to face greater days ahead. Extreme trials prepare us to face greater days ahead. God is interested in you. God has great days ahead for you. If, if you are a child of God, the best is yet to come. Because our eternity is secure in Him. And yes, there will be extreme trials in this life. But God will be with us through them. 
And great days are ahead. Great days are ahead, were ahead for Elijah's ministry. And you may be in the midst of an extreme trial right now. And my question to you is, who is the widow and her son that you can minister to in the midst of this trial? Who are the people that need, whose faith may not be as mature as yours is, and who need a word of encouragement? Do you know it was the widow at Zarephath that affirmed Elijah? We're not told of anybody else to this point who said, you're a man of God. Man, never underestimate or undervalue a word of affirmation. I remember a word of affirmation at one church we were at, just, to, just walking down the hallway. I ran into a sweet lady there. She affirmed me in a way that I really needed to hear, trying to, to figure out my gifting and my place. And she had a word. It was, it was not flattery. It was quick, but it was a word of encouragement. It was a word of affirmation. It was very meaningful to me. And never underestimate what a word of affirmation will do to somebody else. She said, I see now you're a man of God. And maybe Elijah remembered that. We, we don't know for sure. But maybe he remembered that as he stood before King Ahab in the next chapter. As he stood before all those false prophets of Baal. Maybe he remembered that lady saying, you know what? You're a man of God. And maybe, maybe that word of encouragement gave him courage and gave him hope to face the evil in front of him. Well, there was another widow, too, that received her son back to life. Uh, no, it wasn't at uh, Zarephath, but it was at a town called Nain. In northern Israel, the town called Nain, there was another widow. She lived there. Luke's gospel account tells us that a man had died, and he was being carried out there by, this, by the city gate. But then Jesus saw the man, and it said Jesus saw his mother, who was a widow who had lost her only son. And it said Jesus had compassion on her. Jesus had compassion. So he goes up to the body and he says, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Very similar to the way Elijah did. You see, Elijah stretched out three times and prayed. Jesus just spoke the word. And that dead body came back to life. Jesus can speak a word into your situation as well. If you will only cry out to him. Well, remember Janelle? She lay there under the rubble of the North Tower, trapped, steel beam, concrete all around her. her one of her legs was crushed. She couldn't really move. But as she was there, she began to think about her life. She began to reflect back about the faith that had once been so important to her, how she had strayed from that. She had even left her 12-year-old daughter back in Trinidad so she could come to New York City and for a better life. And she began to think through all these things. She was scared of death because she, she wasn't sure where it would take her. All these things were going through her mind. But then all of a sudden she, she thought, hey, wait a minute. What if God wants to do a miracle with me? And so she began to pray. She began to cry out to God, just calling on God. Oh, God, would you forgive me? Oh, God, if you would just give me another chance, I'll live my life differently. It'll have a different direction. It'll be on purpose. And God, would you just forgive me? And she couldn't move her leg. She couldn't really move her head. 
but she could move her left hand. So she stuck her left hand up right above the rubble and just began waving that left hand, just waving that hand. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, someone grabbed that hand. And the the man on the other end said, Janelle, I want you to call me by my name. My name is Paul. You're going to make it, Janelle. I'm not going to let you go. You're going to be okay. I'm going to stay here with you until, until rescue workers come. And Janelle said she just gripped his hand just to make sure he, she was not dreaming. You're going to be okay, Janelle. You're going to be okay. I'm, I'm going to stay here with you. And Paul stayed there with her until the rescue workers came. Janelle was the last person saved at Ground Zero. And she had been there 27 hours. You see, if you will cry out to God, if you feel under the weight, you feel trapped, if you will just lift your heart to Jesus, he will do more than just grab your hand. He will take your life in his hand. And he will take over and he will help you get through this trial. Father, I thank you for the word of God. I thank you that in the midst of trials, you are there. You are our present help in times of trouble, your word says. Father, would you minister to those tonight who are listening, who are struggling with fear, with uncertainty, with doubt, with disappointment, whatever it is, Lord, they feel trapped. God, I pray they would turn to you. Would you intervene, Lord Jesus? Would you intervene and give your peace, your provision, and your power? Help us, Lord. Help us. We need you, O God. Help us to learn how to pray like Elijah did. Help us to cry out and to pour out our hearts to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, God bless you, dear friends. Thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, Pastor is going to deliver another word from Job this Sunday. We eagerly await that. Hope you have a great rest of the week. and God bless. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.